0: Yes, hello, folks. Welcome to a special episode of Beyond the Pitch. I am your host, as always, and delighted to be joined for the very first time on the podcast, the exceptional Nicaris from Sport Intelligence. Someone I've wanted to have on this podcast for a long, long time, so I'm extremely grateful for his presence. A guy in demand, and a guy who's entirely consistent. On elucidating the ethical issues we related to people in sports whether it's Manchester City, Newcastle, whether it's uh, of course the Sheik that is interested in ben Manchester United, Sheik the same, and of course Jim Radcliffe and others and we we'll would go take a quick look we'll try to do this best we can within about 30 minute time frame I want to be respectful of next time uh, and we'll take a quick look at both their backgrounds and ask what an ownership of either of these individuals will look like and if We should expect any legal issues with with stopping us or white papers will help or what have you. So first of all, Nick, thanks for taking the time to join me.
1: Thanks for inviting me on.
0: I am extremely grateful for having you on. I'm going to start with Sheikh Daseem. We're going to have a look at both Sheikh Daseem and Jim Ratcliffe. It's no surprise to me that the Qataris bid for Manchester United. When this individual came forward, it seemed there was some confusion as to who he actually was, the legitimacy of his wealth his propinquity
1: to the Qatari royal family. Um, tell me what you know about Sheikh Jassim. Sheikh Jassim is um, hes either 40 or 41. He was born in 1982, but we don't know if he's had his birthday this year and neither do the people who are speaking on his behalf because they haven't met him. <laughs> um, he is the son of Sheikh Hamad, who was the former... Prime Minister of Qatar between 2007 and 2013. We can come back to Sheikh Hamad, but he's an immensely wealthy, very powerful individual who, over decades, has had long-established links to the um, to the royal family and to politicians at the most at the highest level in Britain and in other countries. Uh, he was also a very senior figure, um, heading up operationally, heading up the QIA, the Qatar. Investment Authority, which is the Sovereign Wealth Fund. So he oversaw investments around the world of billions, hundreds of billions of pounds and dollars um, by that company. In London alone, when, when when under sort of the policy he put in place, the QIA bought the Shard, part of Heathrow Airport, the London 2012 Olympic Village, um, a shareholding in Sainsbury's, blah, 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 blah. So Sheikh Hamad is a well-known person with a, a controversial past. Um, controversial as in, you know, he, he made suggestions that he's sort of a bit out of favour in some sectors of Qatari society for having not just invested in lots of things with the QIA money, but made investments for, him, for, for himself in some of the same things, making huge personal fortune as well. He's controversial because a few years ago, he gave... Over a number of meetings, 2.6 million pounds in cash to then Prince Charles, now the king, um, in carrier bags and hold You know, this guy's a, a senior politician and a link to the inner circles of the highest levels of, of Qatari society. And he's giving Prince Charles a million quid in a in um in a carrier bag. Um it was actually all above board, it was it was legitimate, it was for charity, he could afford it nothing illegal happened, it was all declared, but it's just, you know, that's the sort of behaviour he he indulged with. Uh, Sheikh Hamed, um, that's the dad, He so he's a, he's a well-known, well-established, controversial, very rich, very powerful, very influential um, person in Qatar, so we know a lot about him. Sheikh Jassim is one of his 15 children, and he is, we, we're, we're, frankly, none of us had heard None of us had heard of him before last Friday. Nobody who who follows stuff from outside Qatar knew who this guy was. He was so unknown that until last Friday evening, he did not even have a Wikipedia page um, that could give you even the most basic information because he was that much of an, an anonymous person outside of Qatar. Within Qatar, he is the chairman of the... Um, Qatar Islamic Bank, also known as QIB, and he was given that job when he was 23 years old. So you can sort of see the exceptionalism of Qatari society. If you're if you're high up in the echelons of the royal family, the Al either with the wings of the Al family or in the in the in the very high echelons of the sort of uh, of the people who really control everything in Qatar, then that's the kind of life you have. You he went to Sandhurst Military Academy um, in the UK. Uh, this is Jassim, but so did his dad, Hamad. They both went to Sandhurst, trained as military cadets, and then he finished that cadet training and is made chairman of a massive bank. Um, so that's 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 all that is kind of the publicly available information. He served on the board of various Credit Suisse entities, um, but that's largely because the QIA, which we mentioned earlier, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, bought a chunk of Credit Suisse. So he kind of got some roles there. Mm. In terms of what he's... What he's known about him before last week it's virtually nothing we can't actually specifically pinpoint his age he's 40 or 41 we don't know if he's married or not because he spoke people didn't know they couldn't tell me we don't know if he's got kids we don't know how he amassed a fortune that we would have to assume or what what he's being claimed to be um somewhere five six seven eight billion pounds because that's the amount of money that he will need to buy the club and invest it as he's going to if he has raised this money through his own endeavours in a business career at the age of 40, how's he done it? Again, his spokespeople couldn't say. Um, uh, you'd imagine they might have said, well, he had some family money, He'd, he's also chairman of this and that company, which were very successful, but they haven't even made an attempt to inform me as a journalist and others how this guy made his money. Um, I suspect because they don't necessarily know, I don't know, but that's how little we know about him. What I would say is, and I'm not casting doubt on the fact that he's got access to funds or whatever, but certainly in terms of a story that I wrote at the weekend and a Twitter thread and questioning this guy's um, background is, is is he a genuine Manchester United fan who, as his advisors and spokespeople claim on his behalf, has loved the club since 1992 and is a genuine fan who's been to, I quote, many games? Or is he somebody who might have an interest in football and have followed Manchester United, but just be a guy on whom this bid can be sort of hung? You know, he's an individual figure who's not a state entity. And if, and so he's a good front man for a bid that would get past rules that prohibit, right. um, you know, QSI, which is the QIA subsidiary that own PSG, from owning another club. I mean, my hunch has to be. You know, it looks like a duck, it waddles like a duck, and it quacks like a duck. And in this case, it looks like a front man. You know, it's behaving like a front man. There's there's no credible information to to explain otherwise. It looks like he's a front for a state bid. Um, and, and on the flip side, we don't know anything bad about the guy. There's no reason to suspect he's anything other than a hardworking, senior, well-connected Qatari guy with access to lots of money. So, you know, that's... That's um, that's also got to be taken into account. And until him or his advisors choose to speak out, answer questions, be accountable and give us a bit more information, which we, me as journalists and other journalists are asking these questions because that's our job and, and because when we get the answers we can publish them and hopefully inform Manchester United fans of, of what's really going on here. And so we'll keep doing that, but that's what we know about him, which is a little bit, but not very much. Yeah, I
0: would imagine that anonymity is probably part of the reason why he was selected um, given there's not a lot of information. I, I would imagine, although I'm not particularly confident in my cynicism, uh, takes over here that the Premier League would do a verification of wealth to determine whether it was reasonable to assume that he had the wealth he's claiming that came from legitimate sources rather than um, being distributed down from his father perhaps um, or from other means. Um, how confident are you that the Premier League will do a diligent job in doing a verification of wealth to make sure that it's reasonable to assume that this is the individual band the club and he's not a front man? Um,
1: well, absolutely. They'll do they'll do the tests. I mean, before they do the test, the, the New York Bank reign will obviously do their own checks. They don't want to get into a convoluted process of selling a club school guy who's not good for the cash. So they'll check. Now, what I mean
0: by right, Nick, is to make sure that it's his wealth. And not yeah. uh, and not being funneled down to him by other sources, so that it's yeah. the, you can you can look at his background, look at his life, and say, okay, it's reasonable to assume that this individual has the wealth to buy the club. Yeah. I mean, if you put me up as a front man, it, it would take five minutes to realize it's impossible to 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 assume that I have that type of wealth to buy the yeah. football club.
1: Okay. There's two things here. One, the upper echelons of Qatari society is so opaque and impenetrable. I I think it would be virtually impossible for the Premier League. To somehow, You know, they can't demand that he give them access to any bank account he's ever held. If he if he produces a bank statement showing that he's an account holder at Doha Central Bank and in his bank account is 12 billion dollars. You know, the Premier League don't really have any authority to go beyond saying, well, this is him. This is his driver's license. This is his bank account. This is his last few play pay slips. This is his whatever. They can do checks. He, he can have a CV saying, actually, I did this because I've been a banker now for whatever, 18 years. We invested in this sector just as it, before it took off, and we did this and this and this. And he could probably even demonstrate that he or his bank have, have made money. He can definitely, I'm sorry, he, I'm sure he probably can. There's a high probability he can put together a story that the Premier League won't necessarily be able to knock down. And it it and it's, it's, it's smoke and mirrors because it... it The Premier League will do the checks that they have to do in the same way. And probably the closest comparison is in the same way they, in the end, were forced to or rather legally obliged to let the PIF, the PIF takeover of Newcastle, go ahead. Because legally and technically, PIF and their lawyers, after about 15 months of arguing and blah, 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 managed to convince the Premier League that PIF is not a state project to own Newcastle even though it is the plain as the nose on anyone's face that piff and it is a is a state enterprise of saudi and piff own 80 percent of newcastle but and they quickly change the color of their shirts the whole separation it all becomes technical and legal and that's why a state bid for qatar probably would fail and that's why it's not the qia actually on the no- headed notepaper making the bid because they'd go, everyone would say, no, you can't because PSG are already owned by QSI and you can't do this deal. So they need a frontman. And I think just on the precedent of PIF, I think it will be quite hard for the Premier League if Sheikh Jassim can produce the bank accounts with the cash in there. I don't think the Premier League have got jurisdiction to then demand... To see when the money got paid into that account or i just don't think they have that jurisdiction they will be i think i think in cases like that the premier league as an institution are probably less concerned about um ultimately how the money got into his bank account than for example they'd be much more concerned if he was a person of bad character or had a criminal record or whatever. They, they they don't want owners who are going to come in and not have money and bankrupt clubs and make big, big decisions. They, You know, we, we can debate whether they should be asking questions about is it state money because because we don't want state-run clubs or whatever, but that is not the world we live in at the moment and there's there's not a rule to prevent a state owning a club.
0: Nick, if Thaks and Shinnawatra can pass uh, a proper test and my question is how robust is this? I was listening to a podcast yesterday with Jim O'Neill, the economist. And a United fan. Yes, very much so. He's doing it with uh, Andy Mitten. Yeah. And he was talking about something that uh, made me question this. So the Qataris, of course, as we know, the human rights issues, inseparable uh, from the state that, um, you know, we we all, you know, solve the World Cup. Is there a danger that by a club like Manchester United, which of course is viewed through a whole different lens than any other football club, could backfire, where maybe this gets magnified and amplified, their human rights abuses? And is there an argument to say that the magnification amplification of these issues through the World Cup led to some reforms that have helped um, the country treat migrant workers treat other human beings? in a way that they may not have done had they not have been awarded this. So maybe purchasing Manchester United would bring that further into focus and perhaps accelerate change?
1: Well, for a start, yes, it will certainly bring the focus back. Um, You know, we all followed the bid process that led to the awarding of the World Cup in 2010 for a 2022 event. I spent 12 years of my professional life intermittently and then intensively looking at Qatar and all the issues and the corruption and then the human rights, the death of migrant workers, blah, blah, blah. Um, and of course, that attention was on Qatar because of they were staging the World Cup. Things did change. Things changed, but they changed very slowly and they really didn't change that much. I mean, a minimum wage for, for the effectively you know the slave workforce of of migrant workers in Qatar only came in and I think 2021 11 years after the award you know there's still people working for tiny sums of money living in appalling conditions working in heat that that hasn't changed a lot of the fundamentals haven't changed yes some things have been improved slightly so yes scrutiny might lead to change absolutely but also you know we've been scrutinizing Qatar for 12 years and not that much has changed if they do buy Manchester United you know what appetite will people have to constantly quest you know use Manchester their ownership of Manchester United to keep examining things that we've already been examining for for 12 years I, I think at a certain point um, you know depending depending what he does as the owner and how the club performs on the pitch and and what other Things they, you know, he does as an owner to sort of offset criticism of, of him or or the Qataris, will also influenced how how that will be scrutinised. Let me give you an example. I mean, Manchester City have obviously been very successful at this in Manchester. Sheikh Mansour has sort of not just transformed the club, spent lots of money, spent it pretty sensibly, albeit with the massive caveats of the financial fair play um, charges hanging over their heads and and two. Run-ins with UEFA, but he's also spent lots of money developing East Manchester, investing in property, may, you know, putting some more affordable housing on the social housing market. Fine, he's, he's ultimately a businessman, and they're running that as a commercial enterprise. But he's done lots of things that lots of people in Manchester, East Manchester, think are good. And I'm led to believe that the, the planning in you know the other part of Manchester, the red side of Manchester, would be absolutely the Qataris would probably want to buy any land available within a few you know stone throws of old trafford who knows maybe buy some social housing put money into infrastructure because you know they they won't they're not going to want to come to england and do anything bad or negative the same as shake mansour and, and the uae haven't done it they, they're wealthy enough to put resources into the club and the community around the club in order so that people in the local community can see what they've done and see it as a positive thing. And and whatever you think of Man City or City Football Group and you know you're a follower of mine you'll know I'm pretty skeptical about a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of how they've achieved what they've achieved but whatever you think of them they've done a brilliant job in terms of on success on pitch success and they have invested in the community and, and a lot of people in Manchester really appreciate what Sheikh Mansour's done. Um, and so to that constituency that part of the sports washing thing absolutely works because there are constituents of people who see them, you know, doing good deeds. And I, I would expect if Sheikh Jassim is successful, he would do similar, um, which again is not a bad thing. And, and it and that's why these these issues are so complex, because you could come down to the fundamental issue of should state's own football clubs. Mm-hmm. And I personally think no, and someone else might think yes. And we both entitled to our opinions. Um in terms of the whole sports washing thing, are they, you know, yes, it will bring them scrutiny, but if they do enough other good stuff because they can afford to, then um, then I think they'll end up counteracting that if they behave as good citizens and whatever. And then beyond even that, you've got the issue of, yes, there's a, there, there is certainly an element, particularly with what the Saudis are doing with Live Golf, with Newcastle and with others, yeah. with boxing, with them very much, kind of wanting to, yes, distract and sports watch in a clearly obvious way so that people will over time begin to associate Saudi Arabia with investment in premium sport, right, rather than an oppressive, you know, regime Mm -hmm. that chops people's heads off and um, kills people for being gay and uh, beats up women in prison because they wanted to drive a car. Over time, you know, that's a kind of much more overt, look at this, look at the shiny Cristiano Ronaldo on his 179 million pounds of wages and look at this boxing match and look at the Live Golf. That's kind of, I'm not sure that that um, the Qataris are necessarily doing that. And because of the size of QA, when you just look at the breadth of the, I mean, they've invested in pretty much any major company that you and I can name or think of, they've got stakes in it, whether it's Twitter or Uber or whatever, same. Yes or Barclays or whatever. And why are they doing that? Well, because by geographical fluke, the Middle, East, the, 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 the Middle East oil states, you know, are just have got sitting on this vast, vast resource which isn't going to last forever. But also, please, 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 in, 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 as soon as possible, we'll be redundant because we'll actually have green, you know, yeah. supply of green energy. But so what they've got is they've built this enormous wealth through oil, and what they've been doing and what the QIA have been doing is basically it's post-oil diver- diversification. They're looking to a post-oil world where they are influential, not because they're big and powerful politically or they've got armies or whatever, because they're not, but because they are so rich. It's it, it's the very essence of plutocracy in action. It's power through sheer wealth. And so what they're doing is sensible. They're taking that oil wealth and diversifying it into industries and properties around the world. And, and the soft power element of that is if you can... Buy a football club and therefore have that that role in England. If you own Manchester United, the biggest football club in the world, or certainly in the top three, and certainly a global massive powerhouse in global sport for more than five decades, if you own that asset, you'll have a voice in British politics, in Manchester society, in European culture, in European affairs. It's a very... And if you if you run that club on an exemplary manner and, and do things the right way, then it's a very powerful, soft power tool for I don't like the word sports washing because it, it's almost like you can just own a glitzy asset and suddenly no one asks questions. That's not how sports washing works. It's much more insidious and it's much more, you know, it's much the, the, the Saudis at the moment are doing a much more sort of brazen sports wash. Um whereas Qatar is yes it, it is it's it's if we let's call it sports washing but it's it's soft power it's influence it's it's you know in some ways it could be being a good global citizen bizarre though that sounds given how terrible their human rights record is and their whatever um sorry I'm rambling on but no, these yeah, are totally fine. but they're complex issues and mm-hmm. um and and you kind of think well you know what's actually wrong here? Well, I think what's clearly wrong here is that a state is buying a football club and that and that they are, you know, they're going to try and win over a constituents of people while, while treating a load of people back in their own country terribly. You know, that's wrong here. I just don't think states should be doing it. But there is this, there's a wider legitimate issue to say, well, look, you know, if Qatar wants to buy a football club, they've already got one, of course, and, and they can get away with fronting up shape Jassim, you know, to get it through the you know, get it green lighted by UEFA and the Premier League, then then fair enough. And Man United fans might be happy. I just you know, I support Southampton. We've won the mm-hmm. FA Cup and the and the Johnson's Paint trophy in our history and in my lifetime and I can't see, you know uh, a premier league title in in my lifetime well i and don't so want to see an
0: erosion of competitive balance i mean i yeah. don't want to see that I, I would lose interest in a sport where united you know, won the league every year it would mean it would, it would remove it would, it would remove sport and merit from the equation and exactly there's no 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 attraction to me sometimes you need to lose it's okay
1: yeah um, ab- absolutely
0: i want to ask you one last question um oh. and be a devil's advocate on the qataris um, yeah because In that podcast with jim o'neill one of the things that he had said was when the red knights had attempted to buy manchester united they'd approached the qataris as the anchor the financial anchor in that process none of these human rights issues none of the criticism of qataris surfaced when jim o'neill was trying to buy the football clone do you feel then from a devil's advocate perspective that some of this perhaps is motivated by prejudice towards people from a different part of the world um, there certainly seems to be a leaning towards Jim Ratcliffe and I have my own issues with Jim um, and, and none of these issues made the headlines also some of the people from that part of the world rightly question in my opinion journalists and media outlets who work and own are owned by despots yeah. um, who seem to have a blind spot when it comes to other issues but have no problems um, hanging their hat on this one um, yeah, i can understand where some people may look at that and go that's hypocrisy
1: yeah uh, on the on the qataris as the red knights anchor investor whatever, i don't think i ever knew that i don't know, i didn't know that... it either until i heard no, it yesterday I, mean, I, I, I covered the red knights at the time and you know I, I was in touch with jim at the time i was in touch with other people involved in it um i always thought it was a non-starter because you know it's a great idea to have a fan-owned thing, but practical issues is who's going to put in much money, who's actually going to run the thing, who's in charge. Right. And once you've got a whole group of people, it, it just—it was a nice idea that was never going to work, but I didn't know that. That's interesting. On the, um... I'll send
0: you a link to the podcast so you can listen to it, sure. because Jim mentions it a couple of times
1: in there. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. On the issue with uh, are the Qataris being discriminated against because they're Middle Eastern, or are we discriminating against Saudi because they're Middle Eastern, or are we discriminating against... Um, Shake Mansour, because you know he's Middle Eastern. Um, I can speak for myself, and and mm-hmm. then um, and then I and then I and then I'll maybe widen it out a bit. But I've been doing this job for more than twenty-five years. I have looked at owners from everywhere. I've 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 investigated dodgy people um, and their advisors and helpers and takeovers at clubs from. You, you know i mean basically everywhere arsenal I you know when cronkey first came in i was i had cronkey under scrutiny from the beginning i'd first broke the story that he was going to buy a chunk of arsenal i i i hicks and gillette at liverpool america white americans scrutinized absolutely week in week out during their whole ownership uh blackburn rovers when venkis bought that club venkis were getting coverage in britain that was like borderline if not outright racist sort of you stupid Mm -hmm. chicken farmers and they sort of what what wasn't known at the time is they'd kind of been manipulated into buying the club by a a football agent called Jerome Anderson who Sacked Sam Allardyce. And the baddie in that story was Jerome Anderson. I went to India. I spent time with the Benke's family in Pune. I did a lot of coverage of Blackburn and about exactly what had gone on there. And it wasn't, Benke's weren't the bad guys. They were naive and they were badly advised and blah, blah, blah. But they were not the bad guys. I did, um, uh, there was a guy called Kenny Huang in 2010 who c- claimed that he was like, you know, an owner of uh, of an NBA team and on the board of China's fourth biggest bank and a load of other total nonsense that I proved to be nonsense. He at one point was in preferred bidder status to buy Liverpool football club from Hicks and Gillette. And I exposed him. Um, I think you
0: covered Gatamark too, didn't you? At Portsmouth? Yeah.
1: Oh God. Yeah. Gatamark. I mean, there's, there's, you know, I made a podcast series a few years ago with a company called Sport approached me and said, look, you've got some good stories about all these things. So there's a, I think it's called Football Football Uncovered. I think there's two series of Football Uncovered. And there was a, an episode on Portsmouth, which is just a staggering story. There's an episode about Aston Villa um, and... Um, oh, God, what was his name? at Aston Villa. Tony Tony Gia. Um, There's uh, the guy at Birmingham who went to prison for... ultimately for buying... Uh, for money laundering. Lawrence Bassini, bought... was it? No, no, no. He's a Hong Kong... Hong Kong Chinese oh, okay. businessman who had a background as a hairdresser and his name escapes me. But there's an episode on that. There was Portsmouth. There's been um, Leeds. Oh, my goodness. The amount of... <sighs> what's his name at Leeds? The Italian guy. Um, you know, the Italian... Yeah, Ramazzani or... Uh... No, no, no. He's, Radziani's the current Radziani guy. The um, The guy who, you know, was actually ended up being not fit and proper and had to leave.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, I can't remember his name. I'm yeah, sorry. I know exactly. Yeah, about, honestly,
1: and twenty others, thirty others, forty others. This is this is part of what I've done: is look at people, scrutinise them, meet them, get to know them, ask them questions, and where I find biggie, that's what I do. Now with yeah. with um with Sheikh Mansour, like Sheikh Mansour's, you, you know, the whole sports issue. My issue with Man City has always been pretty much strictly the financial fair play stuff. I'm mean, football business and finance guy who who looks at the numbers and whatever and it was obvious back in 10000 2011 that Manchester City were going to fail FFP my issue with city was really it's nothing to do with you know where he's from or whatever it's did Mas- Manchester City systematically cheat over a load of years and i you know it, it was proved in 2014 they cheated and that's why they accepted without appeal the punishment um and they got done again and then Got overturned on appeal, but still had to pay a fine, and now they're facing 115 charges of of whatever. That's my focus. My focus on Qatar in the World Cup was initially um, the corruption, how they won the bid in the first place. Um, y- you know, there's pretty, you know, we that's a completely separate story, yeah. well known to your listeners, I'm sure. But you know, that was it. And then, and then, as that once they'd won the bid, okay, why are you telling lies about how many people are dying? Why are you treating migrant workers like this? Why are Amnesty International having to say this? Why blah, blah, blah? And that that is not discriminating against the Qataris because they're Qatari or whatever. That's because I'm investigating stuff. Is there is there a wider bias um, that would make certain people just think, you know, well, we don't want middle Middle Easterners or particularly like people from the Middle East? Maybe there is. I mean... Maybe there is, well, there obviously is in some sectors of society, societies, all societies have people who are racist, all people have, you know, societies that are biased, we all have unconscious biases, but have I, do I believe that I am, I'm covering, um, you know, issues based on the fact that I only investigate people who are from the Middle East. No, because I've just demonstrated to you, I've, I've investigated people from England, from Scotland, from...
0: Yeah, damn I a charge a level at you. I'm um, just doing the yeah, wider, yeah. Of, wider of course, coverage and you know, all there's, there's
1: you know. Of course, there's going to be... Yeah, of course there will there will be. Some people some people will be biased and racist yeah. and, and, you know, and it's our job, my job, your job to, if you see, somebody being base racist or you know ignorant or you think that someone's got a problem, then challenge them call call oh, them out someone if I got an email the other day, as a result of you know an article on a Twitter thread the other night I got so many people it's just all the stuff you have seen before suddenly which is fine it comes with the territory this stuff is is just water off a duck's back the <sighs> Manchester United stuff but at this point. But like I did get a couple of you know I got a really sinister email from somebody who who said that? You know, your your article was racist. You're right. a racist. Um, you know, you're ignorant. Blah 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 blah. And it was like, okay. And this person saying, oh, I've educated myself about these things. You need to educate yourself. <laughs> your, your article comes from a place of racism. I'm thinking, no, it doesn't. It absolutely doesn't come from a place of racism. Another story, actually. Um, quickly, uh, in 2012 or 13, Sheikh, Abdu- Sheikh Abdullah. Who's one of the 10 sons of the ruler of, of Saudi Arabia, bought um, half of Sheffield United. Um, yes. Sheikh, Abdul, Sheikh Abdullah, he, he bought it for a pound on the understanding that he would invest 20 million pounds over the next five years, because uh, uh, McCabe, I can't remember his first name, uh, McCabe, the owner of Sheffield United, got into bed with Sheikh Abdullah. Blah, blah, blah. And in the end, McCabe defaulted on his side of agreement, and now the club is 100% owned by Sheikh Abdullah. It just so happened that Sheikh Abdullah was... He was... um, He lived in America. He lived in California. He's a massive... A fantasy football fan, as in he plays fantasy football, he plays fantasy NFL, he also plays fantasy Premier League. He's got a really interesting colourful story. He wants to live away from Saudi Arabia, so he went to America. He took whatever small pot of family money he had, or medium pot of family money, set up his own paper and pulping company, grew it into a £300 million business, amassed his own fortune. It's massive it's... idea. What? It's what? Fantasy football is massive massive idea. Yeah, honest. yeah, yeah. I mean, so he, he anyway, he did... Um, ESPN, the magazine, who I was doing some, I worked with him for a number of years, sporting intelligence had partnership with doing various projects. ESPN, the magazine, which is obviously now defunct, interviewed him um, in his TV cellar, watching six NFL games on big screen simultaneously and talking to him about his fantasy football and how he also loved soccer. When he bought um, um, Sheffield United, he... Um, you know, I got somebody at ESPN who'd interviewed him to give me his email address. And I emailed him, oh, hi Abdullah, you know, I'm Nick. Um, I'd like to speak to you. He said, oh great, I'll be in town next week. And I met him at like this six star hotel in, in, in West London. And he sat down with me and he's just like a totally normal guy. He's a Saudi, he's a member of the senior member of the Saudi royal family, he's sitting there. We're having a cup of tea. He's, we're talking about fantasy football. He's talking about the business of Sheffield United, how it happens. It's great, it's still online. You can find a man online from years ago. If anyone wants to do it, tell them to tweet at me, and I'll find a link. But like, he's a really nice guy. He's a really clever guy. He's got his own business. He did this interview. I've stayed in touch with him. You know, I, I was messaging him a couple of weeks ago, ten days ago, to ask him about this. And uh, dozy character from um, Nigeria who's apparently you know buying the club. Just to ask him, you know, he, he'll you know he'll reply if I send him a message or an email. He's a nice guy. You know. And again, in that instance, nobody was asking about sports washing or how on earth could a Saudi Sheikh own a football club. And the reason is that there's a very big difference between, between him being a guy who Sheikh Abdullah, who in a personal capacity, a genuinely personal capacity, takes a stake for not a lot of money in a football club, who were then in the championship and who he helped get promoted to the Premier League. And because he genuinely, is... A football fan yeah. and he's you know and when I met him he had his iPad I was saying oh who do you follow he said oh I follow you know lots of, like as in I've, I've loved football my whole life and genuinely had Manchester United used to go and, and Man United have been to Saudi Arabia a number of times I think for either for tours or camps or whatever and he, he's got his iPad and him and Fergie having a cup of tea there's him and Ronaldo and him and Carlos Tevez and it's quite clear that he. You know, he's actually a Manchester United fan, I think. But, um, but you know, there's a, there's a big difference between him as a private, a genuinely private individual yes. and a nice, ordinary man in, in many ways buying a football club, and for example, Piff doing what they're doing now on the scale they're doing it in football and golf and whatever. Yeah, I think so, that's an
0: important point, Nick, because you can't just oppose somebody because they're from a certain part of the world. And it's and really that, the source think, of the money that is the issue.
1: That, that's giving me giving you an example of where I'm coming from. I mean, a real-world example yeah. of something that I've done. I wasn't, you know... I think maybe now we're, we're in a different era where maybe if any Saudi individual or something, maybe that's where you, you the thing comes in that you were talking about, where maybe everyone from a certain country gets tarred with the same brush. But like, it didn't even occur to me, you know, I knew obviously, I'd studied development politics and and, uh, and at SOAS in London. And, uh, you know, I I've worked in that area of the world and I know the issues at play. And, um, and um, you know, so it wasn't like I was sitting there not having a clue about what was going on in Saudi Arabia, but that was not Prince Abdullah's issue. You know, he's not there. He was there as a private individual buying the thing. I mean, later, I think the, the reason I think he put... Sheffield United was up for sale as he got summoned home. And I don't know if he's still the sports minister, but he was he had to go home because he was told he was going to be the sports minister. Um, but um, anyway, it's just to say, you know, you, you know, you, you treat a story and different things or sure. you should do on their merits. it's not about what color someone is or i completely company.
0: agree with that nick i want to be mindful of your time i haven't had
1: a chance to get to jim ratcliffe yet
0: yeah. uh, do we have time to do that or should we do it yeah you, know, podcast?
1: you know, keep going
0: because i got the time uh let me turn our attention to jim ratcliffe because obviously uh there seems to be a narrative that uh, jim's the good guy in all of this and uh, that uh, he doesn't have the ties to stay apart. and he's not responsible for certain human rights abuses and what have you, but I did a little bit of homework into Jim and there are certain things that are extremely concerning to me. For example I live in a state California that is torn apart by wildfires and drought. Um, the environmental cost here for abuse of the environment is very very real, it's, uh, it's significant. Uh, it overwhelmingly affects the poor uh, much more than it affects the wealthy. We already have environmental refugees there's there's uh, a cost in terms of lives being lost no question with with extreme weather events across the world um, significant habitat loss we've got indigenous populations losing you know their their homeland due to environmental exploitation. This is not by any means a victimless crime. Uh, Jim's also got certain tax issues. Jim, of course, is Ineos company. I'll just read this properly so that I'm quoting this correctly. Um, Ineos, Saudi Royal Commission signs a 1.9 billion investment agreement with Ineos in Europe. Um, So I want to be fair here uh, because by no means is Jim Ratcliffe,
1: you know, Santa Claus or a panacea. No, no, absolutely not. He's everything you've said and, and probably... Uh, quite a lot more besides what you know worse um he's made his money effectively in the in the petrochemical industry. he owns a whole load of companies y- you know it's his money, but he's made it in a in a dirty, literally dirty industry um, he um yeah there's the tax issues there's um, uh, the environmental costs of of business that he's in absolutely is is not he's not at all. You know, in, in no way could you say this, you know, he's into fracking and... Uh, Shield grass and... All that, all that stuff. Yeah, really damaging stuff. I mean, and, and I, for one, have never said otherwise. I mean, I was asked to, you know, I'm a journalist. I'm asked to do a job, by and i say, well, you do that bid, you do that bid, you do that bid. People, the other sort of recurring trope of this weekend is each time I, I, I was doing the Sheikh Yassib story. I wrote the, that story. I tweeted about that because that's what I was I was doing. Like, someone else was doing Jim Ratcliffe and we've raised these issues. But across the whole weekend, every time I do my thread, it's like, right then, where's your 17-tweet thread about Sir Jim Ratcliffe? Yeah, well, actually, that's, I, that, that's not what I, I was charged to do. You might as well say, well, where's your um, analysis of what President Biden, you know, did in Ukraine last <sighs> week? Well, I'm not a political reporter, actually. And mm-hmm. I, I'm doing this today because this is what I'm doing today. You can't de facto say... You should write an article about everything else that's happening in the world if you want to be fair. That's, you know, but yeah, Jim Ratcliffe is massively problematic. Let's give an example of, of one thing Team Sky, uh, massive question marks over the the credibility of Team Sky and the cleanliness of Team Sky, um, dating back to, you know, 2010 when they were formed. Most people who know about sport will know about the question marks over, you know, grey areas, um, Triumph Sin alone. Um, use, um, TUEs, um, all sorts of dodginess. I did a massive story, was it 20? Yeah, 2021, where I uncovered, you know, a pretty dark, murky story that found out that um, Team Sky had sort of discovered that they'd had a, a, a positive Nandrolone indication, an adverse finding for Nandrolone in one of their riders. And UCAD, the UCAD Anti-Doping Agency, Allowed Team Sky to investigate themselves, right? Yeah. UCAD said, You yeah, just check and see if there's anything dodgy going on uh, and let us know. And Team Sky and UCAD had so little curiosity that they teams they let Sky, Team Sky do their own investigations. Team Sky did an internal investigation that could find no innocent explanation for this positive test. Um and they also obviously didn't tell UCAD and the whole thing was covered up. I uncovered a load of paperwork and detail to basically show that there were strong indications of doping within Team Sky in the run-up to London 2012. And then I went to WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency and said, Look, you know, should um is there something to look at here? Should you not be should UK, UCAD not really have done something here? Should Team Sky have got away with this? The Wada actually then opened a formal investigation into Team Sky and UCAD's behaviour back in that back at that period, and censured UCAD. It's a huge, you know, it's a big story. So you've got this this you know team that's won all these Tour de France with Bradley Wiggins and, and Froome and um, and uh, Geraint Thomas, and and yet there's, there's a, there is a big cloud over, and certainly massive, unquestionable. You've got a taint, what is undoubtedly in many people's eyes a tainted team, right? it says lots about INEOS that in order to improve INEOS's public image, Jim Ratcliffe bought a really tainted cycling team to improve the image of his, you know, planet-destroying dis- enterprises. So absolutely, there are question marks about Jim Ratcliffe. But leaving us leaving aside the sort of um, reputational images of Jim Ratcliffe, and again, for any of your listeners you know why haven't you written about Jim Ratcliffe if you want to go on mail online and look at Jim Ratcliffe you'll probably find 500 articles over the last year alone covering every positive and especially every negative aspect of his work you know there's not it's not like this nobody is saying Jim Ratcliffe is a british savior and a, well some people are saying that and some people are saying he's a local manchester boy but lots of people are actually critically assessing his his decency to be the owner of, of a football club and the custodian of Manchester United as you should and um, so the articles are there if you want to go and look for them you will find it you found it you know any of your listeners can find it Mm -hmm. use google go and read read inform yourselves about what he is and also you know is he gonna how's he gonna fund this because he's he, he owns 26 billion or whatever but I don't know how much of that is tied up in stock how much of it's ready cash is he gonna take out debt is the Glazer debt just going to be replaced by Jim Ratcliffe? Too? I don't know the answer to that. I, I'm led to believe From what I
0: understand, that. he's going to borrow against any of us. Um, yeah. None of Manchester United's appraisal value makes any commercial sense. It, it's not no. rooted in and it doesn't make business sense. Jim Ratcliffe also also uh, 70 years old. Which I would yeah. question contingency plans. What is his contingency? You know, as he yeah. ages? I would, you know, maybe there's something analogous here to what Elon Musk did when buying Twitter, where he neglected Tesla to a degree that started to really affect the stock price and the investors were really upset. Um, The question I would ask is, you know, what's Jim Ratcliffe? Obviously, we've talked about greenwashing, but but why would he really want to do this? Um, Is is it solely, do you think, to divert attention from his greenwashing uh, or his obviously
1: environmental issues? Well, it's the same answer as the Qataris. It's mm. it, it's going to attract. It's going to bring attention upon him. Exactly. You know, and and um, you know, we've been looking. We we have been looking. We've been looking at this on the desk. Me and my colleague Rob Joplin. You know, we're saying, look, we need to do more than this. We we did some last weekend. We need to do more. We, and obviously, if he buys the club, it, that will intensify. You know, if if he buys the club, just because he'll then become within our purview. He moves from being a a, a petrochemical magnate who owns one. You know. Niece or whatever it is he owns that's not really something that we're that interested in because you know we're writing for our audience but once he becomes within our purview of british sport and he becomes a big figure we'll absolutely be all over you know his environmental stuff um his tax affairs uh his finances what on earth is he doing this for when he starts running the club if he ends up buying it is that why is he doing that is this money being spent right should we be quite you know He'll, he will absolutely be bring scrutiny upon himself, and none of which means that he shouldn't, under the law, be allowed to bid and buy Manchester United. But I don't see him. He's he's, he's no better or worse than Qatar, aside from the fact that he's not a nation state and Qatar is, and um, which I have a problem with. But I have sure. I have the same. If, you know, if I were a United fan, I would also have problems with Jim Ratcliffe. You know, I said before I'm a Southampton fan. I, we had an owner from China before the um, the current before the current um, Serbian billionaire bought us last year or whenever it was, and you know I couldn't for the life of me think what this guy from China, you know what what was he doing? What was his motivation? Mm-hmm. You know. Where does his money come from? He, he was, you know, and this isn't libelous because it's just a matter of fact. Sorry, slanderous because it's a matter of fact. But like, he he was in business with two people who were um, executed in China for uh, taking bribes that he had given them. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> now, so this guy is in the largest, most sense, kind of been implicated in significant corruption. And he owns my football club and From everything he did, he didn't actually do anything bad at Southampton. He wasn't money laundering or doing anything bad. He wasn't doing anything good either, and it was a mystery why he owned the club. And as a football fan, it's like, you know, I'm interested. I want the, I just want the person who owns my football club to care about the club, to not be a crook.
0: I mean, Um, that's that's basically it. It's basically, you know, and and
1: not be currently serving a prison sentence for money laundering or murder. I mean, it's not a high bar, is it?
0: For me, uh, Nick, I have two daughters and I can't square support in a football team owned by people who would deny our agency or deny our equivalency to uh, any male or things like that I just I just can't do it I mean yeah. the most precious things in the world to me I have two sons too that anyone who didn't see them as equivalent would be a problem but I want to make sure I keep the focus quickly on Jim Ratcliffe, and we'll I'll let you run yeah. in a minute I want to read an, an excerpt from a Financial Times article In 2018 one of his sites in England received the lowest possible compliance score, environmental compliance score, six others were given BA or B ratings. He uses sports to greenwash fracking and his dirty plastics business said Andy Giorgio, a policy advisor at Food and Water, an NGO. It's worked a lot of people know INEOS but only because of their sports investments and we have to tell them what this company is really about. To be fair my knowledge of INEOS was limited to sports now obviously I don't spend my life looking at this and uh, once I really started to delve into this I had some serious concerns I mean we have a serious ecological crisis on our hands uh, the ocean is filled with, with single-use plastics that's causing horrendous uh, consequences across the world for our health and, and and the health of this planet we had scientists set themselves on fire in front of the Congress the US Congress here begging them to take to
1: listen this is a uh, this is a major
0: concern, and it shouldn't be underestimated.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an existential crisis. It is the biggest single crisis, you know, facing the planet. I'm totally with you, of course. What you're saying is it's just so obvious to me. I mean, during the pandemic, wave one of the pandemic, twenty twenty in Britain, certainly, when we went into that first lockdown in March twenty twenty, and we were in hard lockdown for twelve weeks. There were no cars on the road. There were no planes in the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, the weather. I don't think it's entirely coincidental that the weather in those 12, first 12 weeks, of the pandemic was the best weather we've had in Britain. <laughs> Clear skies, no air, you know, the air pollution. There were infamously, famously in China, suddenly rivers that had been polluted have, you know, fish generating them when they were in lockdown. It almost seemed like, oh my God, the planet has, nobody's going anywhere in a car or plane. And suddenly these remarkable things are happening to to, the, to our immediate environment. And it made me think then, I thought, Oh my god it's taken it's kind of taken a you know all these all these extreme measures that are now in place these lockdowns and the search for the vaccine that in such a desperate rush to find a, a solution to the pandemic and i was thinking bloody hell why you know why are we why is the whole planet all of all of our governments every all of our you know why is the whole planet not thinking that urgently about a crisis that is already so plainly obviously destroying you know you know the ice caps and and bringing around, you know these freak weather occurrences and is raising global temperatures why you know why are we why are we not acting as urgently as we did to try and get out of a pandemic on the environment which is just so much even bigger than any number of pandemics you could think so yeah and Jim Ratcliffe has got a role in that I'll just back on the recognition of INEOS. the only reason I I did know Jim Ratcliffe and before um knew of him before he invested in any sports because again I'll get the year wrong but a number of years ago six years ago nine years ago whatever um Jim Ratcliffe came out of nowhere to come from nowhere to number one in the Sunday Times rich list right um this the Sunday Times rich list is an annual sort of magazine which lists thousand richest people in britain and it gives an estimate of their wealth and they've been comp- it's been a, it's a brilliant journalistic kind of you know marketing exercise and the, the sunday Times sells an extra five hundred thousand copies on the sunday that it comes out each year and blah 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 people have probably heard of it but the, the the person at the top of that rich list well up until then had been the same sort of rotating group of roman of who was then a british resident or um the guy who owned arsenal and latterly was involved with Everton um and uh, it was Minerv, wasn't it? yeah it was Monav and yeah. a few other tycoons whether British or British based for years and suddenly Jim Racken, I thought well that is weird how can somebody have been compiling a rich list for these years and missed the fact that there's this British industrialist who is actually worth yeah more, more? and so so it's only because I took a passing interest in the rich list because I you know I'm interested in well, particularly rich business people who are involved in sport, that I I noticed his name then. I thought, that's curious. He's obviously decided to declare to the Sunday Times. I'm assuming here that he, at some point, went to the Sunday Times, by the way, and said, by the way, you've been missing me, you know, (laughs) and all this stuff. I don't know, but it was weird that he hadn't been on it before. And then I thought, okay, what's INEOS? And then I looked at his companies. And when you haven't got a list in front of me, but if you look at all the INEOS um, subsidiaries, he's in everything related to petrochemicals and refining and plastics and, you know, um, anything that Johnson & Johnson might, you know, he, he owns a company that does everything Johnson & Johnson or petrol or shell or whatever does. Absolutely. Um, but, so yeah, I, I, I did know of him before and then you know, the fact that he's then using sport to, you know, perhaps brighten up his image, yeah, I mean, I guess that probably is part of it. I don't I don't know him, I've not met him, I don't know you know, supposedly a Chelsea fan. I think is he a Chelsea fan? He, he says to... he, not a fan, but he had
0: a Chelsea season ticket. Well, I don't know yeah, well, works. maybe <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't
1: know the truth of it. Uh, maybe, maybe it is an image thing, um, but uh, a greenwashing thing. In I which mean... case, you know, he he should be scrutinised. But if he if he, you know, it, for him and um, particularly for Sheikh Yassim, who's had zero public international profile until last Friday night, zero to make themselves in one press statement among the most scrutinised people in the world. And if whichever of them or whoever else actually buys Manchester United are going to make themselves the most scrutinised, one of the most scrutinised people in the world. I remember when the Glazers took over In you know, I, I covered it. I was at the Independent then. It was 2003, I think, the first share purchase. And then there was the whole, you know, cubic expression, Rock of Gibraltar mm-hmm. up to the point of... You know, JP Magnum oh, M- 2005, um, you know, takeover and the leverage buyout, the PIK, high interest, you know, bonds that they use, the borrowed money, the leveraging. I wrote so, I covered every cough and spit, the green and gold campaigns, the blah, blah, blah. We we scrutinize the Glazers in every way. They're trashy, you know, low rent malls that they owned, as well as the, the Buccaneers that they owned. The fact that, um, you know
0: they were sued exactly. by trailer park owners for illegally inflated yeah, rent yeah. for things like having it's audacity bad. of having children and pets and Harley Davidson sued them and
1: all that stuff. And we scrutinised. They were scrutinised. All the all that stuff, you know, they I they probably they probably didn't realise maybe quite how much they would come under scrutiny from from a group of us who you know in the British press because Manchester United are so big, so suddenly it's like, right, who are these people? The fans were obviously a lot of the fans were obviously an uproar because a a debt-free, very profitable company was now laden with however many hundreds of millions of pounds of leveraged debt, and particularly these potentially damaging paying kind loans. So we covered all that, you know, we've scrutinised the Glazers throughout their ownership, recording every time they've taken dividends or sold shares or enriched themselves, Um, and their ownership of the club ultimately while massively unpopular for, for large periods of their ownership, you know, shows that Fine, they're rapacious carpet bagging businessmen. But in terms of the amount of money they have made out of Manchester United, might might now ultimately make if they sell the club for five billion quid, Mm -hmm. is you know the best to our best of our knowledge, they only ever put two hundred and sixty million pounds of their own money into the venture, and they might not even have they might even have borrowed some of that. And if they've turned that, uh, what are we eighteen years later into five or six billion quid, you know. It's obscene. Maybe they should go and buy a football club in Qatar.
0: <laughs> My friend, I've been you've been creaming, incredibly generous for your time, so I want to ask you one last question on the oh. way out. Uh what would be the best and worst thing you could say about Sheikh Jassim and the best and worst thing you could say about John McCliff?
1: The best thing you could say about Sheikh Jassim is that he is a respectable um anonymous Sandhurst graduate who's 40 or 41, TBC, married or not, TBC, who may or may not have supported Manchester United, who, who to our knowledge, has does not have a criminal record and might have access to family money. The worst thing to say about him is he isn't a, actually a genuine Manchester United fan. He's agreed to be a front man for a state-run, state-backed sports washing project. The best thing I could say about Jim Ratcliffe is he's a successful British businessman who, you know, is one of the wealthiest people in Europe um, who, um, who, wants to buy a football club and invest in it. And the worst thing I can say about Jim Ratcliffe is he's got, um, uh, a company and a conglomerate and a bunch of subsidiaries that are doing real damage to the planet he has got question marks over him about tax avoidance and uh, ethics and fracking and destroying the planet and um and he his, his motives are, are not pure
0: Thank you, Nick. It has been wonderful to have you on this podcast. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Folks, don't forget to give this gentleman a follow. I will tweet all the links in this podcast and his fantastic website, Sporting Intelligence. Much, much needed. Uh, Scrutiny and coverage. Uh, Thank you very much, Nick. Take it easy, and I really appreciate your time, my friend.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Cheers, mate.